to Brother Chris if you'd come. Good morning again. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we just come before you today. We just want to thank you just for this morning. We just want to pray that as we go into this message today, that anything that's not biblical, you just let fall in deaf ears. And we just pray that the message today just builds up the saints and that help them to grow to love you more and to recognize any errors in their life where they have sin that they need to repent of. And for those who don't know you, I just pray that you just open up their ears and their hearts so they come to a saving knowledge of your son. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. As you turn there, let me just say the book of Revelation should not intimidate us. It can be confusing and even scary at times, but we must remember that this book declares the final victory of Jesus Christ and the consummation of God's glorious plan of redemption that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. And as we read the book of Revelation, we must remember that the best way to interpret the tough passages is with other scripture and not the most recent headlines on Fox News. So today, we're going to look at one of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches. I hope and pray that we will learn from what the church in Ephesus did right and what they did wrong. So let's read what Jesus himself dictated to the Apostle John to the church in Ephesus, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, say this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have dirt for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you, you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this morning, we're going to examine the letter to the church in Ephesus in six points. The contents, the commendations, the complaint, the counsel, the call, and the consequences. First, let's look at the context. The letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation are often misunderstood because we do not understand why they were written or who they were written to. And the letter in the church of Ephesus and the other letters were written to specific churches that really existed. Yes, the seven churches were literal churches made up of real people like you and me. Contrary to what is popular in some circles, they do not represent seven periods of the church age detailing the gradual decline of the church. Those who hold to the church age theory believe that the church to the letter in F to the letter to the church in Ephesus represents the church starting in the apostolic age to the end of the first century. But even a quick analysis of the church age theory shows that it does not pass exegetical muster. 
While the letters address particular issues that churches are dealing with, they also contain universal principles for all churches throughout history, including Christ's Reformed Baptist Church. We also must know that each letter was meant to be read to all seven churches, and not just the church it was addressed to. We see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus told the Apostle John to write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Jesus wanted the other churches to read and learn from the various commendations and complaints that he had with the other churches. And we should learn from them too. If the letter to the church in Ephesus is written to a specific church, who is the angel that is referred to in the opening of the letter? Verse 1 states, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who, amongst, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The angel is a pastor of the church in Ephesus. He is a representative of the entire church. And the letter was sent to the pastors of the seven churches and was then meant to be read to the entire congregation. And another question is, that must be answered is, who are the seven stars and the seven lampstands? We only have to look a few verses earlier to get our answer. In Revelation 1.20, it states, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you have saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. But also to understand this letter, we must understand what was going on in the church in Ephesus at the time of this letter. During this time period, it was one of the most wealthiest and most populated cities in Asia. Some historians have estimated that over 200,000 people lived in that region. Other historians have actually placed a number closer to 600,000. It was considered to be a major trade center, and almost all the major roads in the ancient world intersected in Ephesus. And its rivers were accessible by some of the largest trade ships, which made it a major port for trade. However, the city of Ephesus had a sinister side. It was the epicenter of the ancient world for pagan worship, idolatry, and sexual immorality. It was home of the temple that was dedicated to Artemis, who is sometimes referred to as Diana, a Greek fertility goddess. It was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. Artemis' temple contained several brothels, and the manufacture of the idols was a major source of income. Prostitution was rampant, and sexual immorality played a large role in the worship of Artemis. But these immoral activities did not just stay in the temple. It had a devastating effect on the entire city. Herculitus, a pagan philosopher, said, no one can live in Ephesus without reaping at the immorality he must see on every side. Acts 19, 19-20 records some of the fruit that came about the preaching of the gospel in Ephesus. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Later in this chapter, we see that a riot broke out over the disruption the church had on the idol business. And Paul planted the church in Ephesus and labored there for almost three years. This church was eventually led by Timothy, 
Paul's beloved son in the faith. But at the time of this letter, approximately 40 years has passed. A whole new generation was leading and fellowshipping in the church. And the church in Ephesus was surrounded by immorality on every side. Sin and temptation was everywhere. The church was constantly under attack from false teachers. Many who would rise up from within the church itself. This is the very thing that Paul warned the Ephesian elders of in Acts 20, 28-30. Paul told them to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, which of the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves were coming among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. It was under these pressures that the leaders shepherded the congregation, and their constant vigilance took its toll. Finally, we must understand the spirit in which the letter is written. Verse 1 tells us Jesus walked among the seven golden lampstands. If you recall, the seven lampstands represented the seven churches. This verse reminds us that Jesus is walking among his church. He is with them and loves them. He is going through the trials and tribulations with them. And as we are about to see, Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus was written in a spirit of a stern but loving correction. Now that we understand the basic context of the letter, let's move on to our next point, the commendations. Jesus begins his letter to the church in Ephesus with several commendations. I hope and pray that Jesus can say the same about us. In verses 2 and 3, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. First, Jesus commended the Ephesian church for their deeds or works. They were doers of the word, not just hearers. They took all the commands in Scripture seriously and obeyed them all, even when it was hard to do so. Jesus said he knew their toil. To toil means to work to the point of exhaustion. They worked hard and did not shirk their duties to Christ. And all their work was done in a hostile environment that was not friendly towards the bride of Christ. And the church of Ephesus did not back down. They patiently endured the various trials and tribulations they experienced. Like the church in Ephesus, we must serve Christ even when it is hard to do so, and it comes at a high personal cost. Jesus reminded us in the Sermon on the Mount that, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Second, Jesus commanded the church in Ephesus for knowing their theology and their devotion to scripture. They exposed false teachings and marked false teachers. They stood firm on the truth in order to protect other Christians from damnable teachings and to defend the name of the beloved king. The church in Ephesus understood that theology matters, and so should we. 
Theology is simply the study of God. If we truly love God, we would want to study Him and learn as much about Him as we could. The late R.C. Sproul has said, No Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian is a theologian. Perhaps not a theologian in the technical or professional sense, but a theologian nonetheless. The issue for Christians is not whether we're going to be theologians, but whether we're going to be good ones or bad ones. The church in Ephesus had a very high view of theology, but unfortunately many people in the modern church do not. To them, theology is something that's looked down on, that is something that is impractical, divisive, and even dangerous. They are condemning the very thing that Jesus himself commended the church in Ephesus for studying. Let that never be said of us. Some have said, I have no creed but Christ. Besides the fact that I have no creed, but Christ is a creed, there's an even bigger problem with that mindset. What Jesus are they referring to? The Mormon Jesus? The Jehovah's Witness Jesus? As soon as you try to define who Jesus is from the Bible, you're using theology to do so. We also see that the church in Ephesus tested everything by scripture, just like the noble Bereans did in Acts 17. Just like they did, we should do so as well. And scripture is our only inerrant, infallible, and sufficient source to tell us what God expects of us and to help us discern true and false teachings. We see the church in Ephesus fought against false teachers and teachings. And to them, scripture is very clear on this point, and we should follow their example. Because we are commanded to expose false false teachings and mark mark false teachers ourselves. A.W. Pink reminds us that Christians must always be on guard because false prophets are to be found in the circles of the most orthodox. And they pretend to have a fervent love for souls, yet they fatally delude multitudes concerning the way of salvation. The pulpit, the platform, and pamphlet hucksters have wantonly lowered the standard divine holiness and so adulterated the gospel in order to make it palpable to the carnal mind. However, we must be mature and careful in our discernment. We must discern between a faithful brother and heir who just needs corrected, and a wolf who needs to be exposed and chased out of the church. The third commendation that Jesus had for the church in Ephesus is found in verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus mentioned the Nicolaitans by name and stated that he hates their works. Those are strong words. My friends, notice that Jesus is actually commending the church in Ephesus for hating their works. As Christians, we should hate the things that God hates. The hatred of sin must come from the love of things that God loves. For example, our love for children and God's law should drive us to hate abortion. Who were the Nicolaitans and what did they do? They were a group of false teachers that were infiltrating churches and were well known for idolatry, sexual morality, and perverted worship. Some early church fathers taught that they were led by a man named Nicholas, who was one of the first seven deacons that were appointed in Acts 6. At some point, he apostatized and went the way of Balaam. However, some modern commentators, such as F.F. Bruce, teacheth he was a disciple of a well-known Gnostic heretic known as Serenithus. 
But verse 6 is not the only time that Jesus mentions the Nicolaitans in his letters to the seven churches. He, he condemns the church of Pergamon for having some in their church who have embraced their teachings. Now let's move on to our third point. The complaint. After Jesus commended his church for their service, their steadfastness in trials, and the commitment to true doctrine, he provided a stern rebuke. In verse 4, But I have this against you, that you left your first love. When we think about someone losing his first love, we often think about a marriage. When a couple first gets married, they enter what people call the honeymoon period, where everything is amazing. They love being together, and every minute apart seems like an eternity. They self-sacrificially serve each other and enjoy every minute of it. Then over time, things settle down, and they fall into a routine. The little quirks that they loved about each other at first become annoying, but they put up with it. And all the things they did for each other becomes a chore instead of a joy, but they continue to do them. The wife is still ironing her husband's shirts and cooking his dinner, but her heart is no longer in it. She's serving her husband out of obligation and not love. The husband continues to work overtime to pay the bills and completes a honey-do list every weekend, but his heart is no longer in it. He is serving his wife out of obligation instead of love. And from the outside looking in, everything seems to be going great, but their passion is gone and their love for each other is lukewarm. By all outside appearances, the Ephesians appear to be dedicated Christians. They knew their proper doctrine and rightly divided the word of God. They fought to, pre to preserve the faith from heretical teachings. They suffered greatly for their faith, but kept pressing forward. The problem was they forgot what they were fighting for. They started to love the fight more than the one they were fighting for. They started to love doctrine more than they loved Christ. It is important to remember that Jesus did not condemn the Ephesians for loving theology. He condemned them for loving theology more than him. He condemned them for having a cold, lifeless theology. As one commentator has said, their doctrine was as clear as ice and just as cold. Unfortunately, we often see this in churches that hold to the glorious doctrines of grace. All their theological I's are dotted and T's are crossed, but they have a cold, dead orthodoxy. It is so common that it's even earned itself a name, the frozen chosen. We also see this happen to people involved in discernment ministries. They started the ministries with the right intentions. They wanted to proclaim Christ and defend the truth of the scriptures. But over time, they lost focus. They're still proclaiming the truth, but they're no longer doing it out of love. Their motivation slowly shifted from a heartfelt desire to defend Christ to heresy hunting and winning theological battles. They're living for the fight instead of living for Christ. But what about you? Would Jesus have the same complaint about you? Are you passionate about intricate details of theology and can pinpoint even the slightest error in someone's doctrine but have lost sight of God? Are you known for your bold defenses of Christ and his church but your love for him is only a hint of what once was? We all see how the church in Ephesus served God boldly and consistently. They did not shirk their duties when it was inconvenient or even when it was dangerous. They were busy serving Christ, but their heart was no longer in it. They were going through the motions. Despite all their service to Christ, they had lost their joy of salvation. 
The church in Ephesus need to be reminded of what Jesus told Martha when she was too busy serving instead of sitting at his feet like Mary. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered by so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. Just like the church in Ephesus, Jesus was not condemning Martha for her service. He was pointing out that she had lost sight of him in all of her service. But what about you? Are you busy serving God and his church that you lost sight of God? That you sacrificed a relationship with Christ in order to serve him? It's not an either or thing. You can serve God and have a relationship with him. My friends, you are in a very dangerous place if you have abandoned the love you had at first for Christ. The loss of affection for Jesus is often the first steps towards apostasy. But what should you do if you feel like you lost your first love? Follow the counsel that Jesus gave his drifting church that he loved, a church that he wanted to return to him. Now let's move on to our fourth point, the counsel. Jesus counseled his drifting church to do three different things in verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The first counsel that Jesus gave the church in Ephesus to remember where they had fallen from. To think back to the period of time where their love for God mattered more than anything else. To think back to when they were first saved and how they burned with passion for Christ. To think back to the mountaintop experience they had when they were first saved. To think back about the zeal they once had for the word of God. To think back to when their relationship with Christ meant more than knowing a definition of a theological term, winning an apologetical argument, or being known for how long you spend in prayer. To think back to when serving others in the name of Christ was seen as a privilege instead of a joyless obligation. Granted, as the Christian matures in their faith, their passion will also mature, but they will still have a passion for Christ. But what should you do if you lost the joy of your salvation? Make Psalm 51 your prayer, and specifically focus on verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and uphold in me a willing spirit. Pray that God will give you a heart that would desire to serve him joyfully, out of love and not duty. The second counsel that Jesus gave the church in Ephesus was to repent. To repent means more than simply changing your mind about sinful behavior. This change in mind also involves a turning away from sin. Jesus is calling his church to turn from their half-hearted devotion and to seek him first in all things. My friends, immerse yourself in the word of God. His word will expose anything in your heart that is getting in your way of loving him. His word will show you your indwelling sin and lead you to repentance. As the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In some cases, it may involve repenting of doing good works. Hebrews 6, 1-2 says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead in eternal judgment. The dead works the writer of Hebrews is referring to are works 
that a person does in an attempt to earn their salvation. As Christians, we know that we're not saved by works, but we can fall into a similar mindset. We start thinking that somehow good works are keeping us saved, that our continued salvation is depending on the works we do. Those are the dead works that a Christian needs to repent of. The third counsel that Jesus gave the church in Ephesus was do the works they did at first. He is calling them to continue to devote themselves to learning about God by studying theology and to continue to test all things by scripture. To continue to call out and mark false teachers. To continue to serve God by serving others. To continue to persevere through the trials and tribulations that come as a result of their service to Christ. However, the return he is referring to is the motivation and heart behind those things. Where all that is done out of love for Christ and the work flows from that love. Jesus also calls his church back to prayer and sweet, sweet fellowship with him. Fellowship with him through prayer and time in his word. Now let's move on to our fifth point, the call. The first half of verse 7 states, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a common phrase that Jesus used many times throughout the Old Testament, the Gospels, and in each of the seven in each of the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. This phrase does mean that we should pay attention to what is being said, but it means much more than that. It is a reminder that it is God who opens the ears and the hearts of those who hear and respond to his call. As Jesus said in John 10, 27-28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It is also a reminder that it is, only the Holy, it is only through the Holy Spirit that we can have the heart and ability to understand spiritual things. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul stated, But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. We also notice that the text does not say, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church in Ephesus. The text says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What Jesus said to the church in Ephesus addressed that specific situation. However, the lessons contained in the letter apply to all the churches. It is also called for all the churches to learn from what the church in Ephesus was doing right and what they were doing wrong. It is a call that is directed to all churches and to all Christians at all times. The question is, if you have ears to hear his call. If you're in Christ, you do have ears to hear. Take to heart what Jesus himself said to the church in Ephesus and follow his instructions. If you have lost your first love, God is calling you to repentance. He is calling you repentance at this very moment. He is calling you to guard biblical truths and to defend biblical doctrine. He is calling you to cast out false teachers. He is calling you to serve him out of love not obligation. And how a church responds to this call will have eternal consequences. And how you personally respond to this call will have eternal consequences. Now let's move on to our sixth and final point, the consequences. In verse 5, Jesus gave the church of Ephesus a very serious warning. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove the lampstand out of its place. 
unless you repent. Dennis Johnson explains that this means more than Christ removing a church from a particular city. It means a removal of Christ from a particular church. Removal of a candlestick is a departure of Christ's presence through the Holy Spirit, which eliminates light, power, vitality, and comfort in the church. When God removes his presence from a church, usually one of two things happen. The church would die a slow, painful death. Personal conflicts start and destroy the church from within. All the hard work of ministry provides no fruit. Eventually, ministry ends, outreach ends, and the people who remain can feel the lack of the Spirit of God. Or the church starts to compromise, and they become what they once fought against. They may experience numerical growth, but that's actually the judgment of God and not a blessing. We have seen this happen over and over again throughout church history. Churches that once boldly proclaimed the gospel have become synagogues of Satan. We've all seen over and over again great institutions such as Princeton and Harvard that were founded to train pastors deny the very truths on which they were founded. But whatever happened to Ephesus? The church continued to serve God, and there was a Christian presence when the city was destroyed by the Goths in 262. Christians took advantage of the situation and actually built churches from the ruins of the Temple of Artemis. In 431, the city hosted a council that affirmed the Nicene Creed and declared Nestorianism a heresy. Nestorianism teaches that the incarnate Christ had two separate persons, one divine and one human. They denied the biblical understanding that Christ is one person made up of two natures, one divine and one human. Over time, the city experienced earthquakes, lost its harbor, and had an invasion of the Ottoman Empire. But today, there is no Christian church in the region of where the church in Ephesus once stood. They may have responded to Christ's counsel for a time, but they lost their first love, and God removed their lampstand. I pray that Christ's Reformed Baptist Church will always remember her first love. If she ever falters, I pray that she will follow Christ's counsel and return to God in heartfelt repentance. The second half of verse 7 states, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The phrase, to him who overcomes, can be translated as conqueror. The conqueror is a Christian. Like all Christians, he is fighting against sin, the devil, and the world. Thankfully, it is a fight that he will win through the power of the Holy Spirit as his face perseveres to the end. And since all Christians overcome, they get to eat of the tree of life. We last saw the tree of life in the Garden of Eden as God cast Adam and Eve out after they ate the forbidden fruit and sin entered the world. But God, in his loving mercy to his rebellious children, barred them from partaking of it. He placed a cherubim with a flaming sword in front of the garden to prevent man from entering it in their sinful state. But now that the Christian had his sins cleansed by the blood of Christ and is clothed in his righteousness, God will allow them to enter what is called the paradise of God. The paradise of God is the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And all Christians get to experience what the Apostle John saw in his vision, found in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as a crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit of every month. And the leaves of the tree 
for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and there will not need any light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will loom for them. And they will reign forever and ever. Now this great promise is only for the believer. If you're an unbeliever, you will not get to eat of the tree of life in your current state. When you die, and we all will die someday, you will not enter God's paradise. You will not enter God's rest. You will be sent to hell, where you've been conscious torment for eternity as God pours out his holy wrath on you. You will be sent to hell because that is what you deserve for your sins, because you have broken all of the Ten Commandments. For all the evil and selfish things that you have done in thought and deed, God will hold you responsible for each and every one of them. No matter how hard you try, you'll never be able to atone for your own sins. And the only way to be saved from hell that awaits you is to have someone else atone for them for you. In his loving mercy, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to atone for the sins of all those who repent and believe. He became a man and lived a perfect life where he never sinned in thought or deed, not even one time. He died on the cross in the place of all those who repent of their sins and believe in him. And if you do that, if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, he will take your place. He will atone for your sins for you. He will pay the penalty that you deserve for all of your sins and give you the perfect record of his holy life. He will save you from your sins and give you eternal life. And we know that his sacrifice for those sins were accepted because he raised from the dead three days after his crucifixion. My friend, if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation... You can enter paradise and find rest. You will get to eat of the tree of life. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we just come before you today. We just want to thank you so much for this letter you sent to the church in Ephesus. It just contains so much truth that we need to embrace in our lives. We just pray that we embrace the commendations to the church and, and implement in our lives. But we also pray that we take seriously the warnings you gave them. We just pray that you just help us examine ourselves to see if we're falling to the same errors. And if we do, we just come through repentance. And in all things, we just pray that you're glorified. Amen. Amen.